Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to True Restoration. Here is your host. Father, do you want to start with the headline on page 203? The fathers and doctors were in every century the luminaries of the church. Sure. It's, you know, it's very nice uh, or very comforting, I think, uh, for us as Catholics to understand that there are people who have uh, been given greater graces and greater uh, responsibilities, of course, etc., but always by God's grace, by their, um, by their either their uh, designation within the church or by even, of course, their intellects, uh, their, you know, their being smart, so to speak, uh, to be the, the teachers of the church. And so the fathers and the doctors of the church, uh, um, they were, as the chapter title says, the luminaries. They were the light of the church in times of darkness. And so the divine providence of God, of course, called forth in every age, as Monsignor writes, of men who by their piety or their high position, they strengthen the church of our Lord. And it's you find that even with amongst the saints um, in the times of great persecutions, um, uh, great martyrs who have uh, stood up in the midst of that as an example, as a light for others to follow or to explain things to uh, the maybe the less educated of Catholics. Uh, and so you have throughout the history of the church, and especially now we're talking about the fathers and the doctors of the church, these uh, these high intellects that were, you know, um, grace built upon nature. And so God's grace had, had uh, Almighty God established uh, them as to be the expounders uh, of certain articles of the faith or um, against heretics. And so their, you know, their writings or, or their, their sermons, uh, enabled, of course, uh, a better account of the faith, because especially for the fathers of the church, they were, as Monsignor reminds us, they were closer to the fountain of truth. In other words, they they were the closest to our Lord. I mean, they lived, you know, and uh, in, in, uh, they talked with people who saw our Lord, who discoursed with our Lord often. Um, and so um, for, the, for the fathers of the church, you know, the common opinion is that the last of the fathers of the church died in the year 1153, St. Bernard. And so from that 1153 backwards, of course, that's the time the church calls the age of the fathers. And so um, you have, you know, the the, the great names uh, that Monsignor names a few, you know, people like Clement of Rome or Ignatius of Antioch, Polycarp, Justin, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Cyprian. Um, you know, those are, you know, of course, saints. Uh, but then you also have others who maybe weren't saints, but yet great um, loyal children of the church, uh, Papias, Clement of Alexandria, or or even those who wrote great things every, uh, about the church and about the faith, but even maybe later in life did fall into heresy. Um, you know, whether it be whatever whatever heresy may be, be Tertullian origin or origin was suspected of it, as Monsignor notes, but Tertullian for sure. Um, but nonetheless, is when they were writing, and of course they were the great luminaries of the church. They were, they were the, uh, uh, they were the the fathers of the church because they all gave testimony in their writings of what the church believed and practiced uh, in their time. And so, um, you know, it's but it's the church, of course, as you know, Monsignor in the whole book really permeates the fact uh, that it's the church, of course, who decides 
who's the competent writers and sincere witness of, of apostolic and, and ecclesiastical doctrine and in the true sense of the word. And so it is the church who designate who's the fathers. Um, who, And Monsignor gives three um, or four uh, kind of, uh, so to speak, uh, signs of that and, and by their uh, sublimity of their doctrines is necessary. In other words, um, you know, when that author, that person commands, they command our respect when he transmits truths of great importance. And so those truths may not be related in a, in a brilliant or great or, uh, or a great style or a, a great, uh, um, you know, flourishing manner, but they are important on account of the antiquity of the author. Uh, author. And so, you know, all the authors that I mentioned before of the doctors and fathers of the church, you know, they, of course, they were all of antiquity. You have sanctity is required, um, pureness of life, um, because that renders one able to see better what belongs to the kingdom of heaven, as Monsignor says. Antiquity, you know, again, the nearer that the writers are to Christ in the apostolic times, the more revered is their testimony. And that's just human, I mean, that's just reason, I mean, by itself. I mean, because the closer you are to to uh, the, the, that truth of, of our Lord, or the reality is that the you know the the, the more um, freshness, so to speak, you have uh, of that teaching, and so you're able to grasp it more clearly. Often, and of course, again, it always ends with the approval of the church, and so um, that is uh, you know the idea of. Of this great, these great luminaries of the church, uh, uh, as the fathers of the church. And Father, it says here, and you mentioned as well that by common opinion, Saint Bernard, who died in the year eleven fifty-three, uh, is the last of the fathers of the church. So there is a difference then between fathers and doctors of the church. Uh, what is the difference, please, Father? <clears throat> well, the difference uh, is that the uh, the uh, a doctor of the church does not necessarily fit into that those kind of categories I just mentioned that Monsignor mentions of especially that of antiquity but um, because there are doctors of the church who are past that time of the age of the fathers that the church of course recognizes there's 30 of them so but uh, you know but it's but it's based mostly or it's based on a brilliant exposition of the Christian doctrine and a Often, as Monsignor writes, and I, I love this, the crushing refutation of the enemies of the church, uh, and so, you know, in the time, in the, uh, um, the, the, so the difference really is, is uh, that the fathers of the church are those who lived in that time closest to our Lord. The doctors of the church are don't necessarily bound by that. So, but there are, of course, some fathers who are doctors as well. Um, of the church, um, but there's you know also doctors of the church who are not fathers of the church. So it's just it's a matter really of a difference of uh, time, so to speak, or, or era, I guess you can say. Um, but you know they're all bound by certain things uh, like witnesses, um, is t- or witnesses, as Monsignor says, they proclaim what the church of their times believed practiced. Um, they don't assert their own opinion or doctrine, but declare what they say or heard or learned from the ancients. And as then teachers or the doctors of the church, they defend then and illustrate 
with arguments what belongs to the faith. And so it's not like the, the doctors of the church maybe did not talk of, obviously, to the ancients of the term or talk to people who uh, knew our Lord or, of course, the apostles themselves or even our Lord himself, um, but yet are defending or elucidating what was given to the fathers of the church already. So, you know, the difference, you know, really is... Uh, um, it's uh, they're they're both witnesses and teachers, but yet again, it's just uh, fathers of the church. There's a specific uh, timeline that they are, are considered fathers of the church. So essentially, they are the same thing. Like for instance, it says here on page 206 that uh, one of the doctors, the doctors of the church, is Saint Thomas Aquinas. Essentially, they're the same thing. They fill the same role. They have the same uh, respect or authority. But it's just uh, the fathers of the church and doctors of, of the church is a different identification based on the time they lived in. Yes. In a simple state, yes. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So on the headline on page 208 reads, the fathers distinguish the scriptures from tradition as two different parts of revelation. <clears throat> well, that goes right to the heart again of, of um, revelation of you have... Uh, Catholics, of course, have always uh, believed because our Lord had taught it, and the Church has always taught that Revelation is two parts, Scripture and tradition, whereas heretics, Protestants, only say tr uh, Scripture. So, But most of the traditions, of course, of the Church have come through us through the writings of the Fathers. Um, you know, they... Uh, uh, they were always the 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 um, the bulwark of the Christian truth and all religious upheavals, um, you know, used to um, combat all sorts of heretics. And so, you know, throughout the history of the church, there always have been heresies or errors. Um, but you know, thanks to as Monsignor says, thanks to God, we can say with certainty that all errors past or present or even to come, have already been valiantly combated and refuted by the fathers of the church. And it really goes to scripture as well. There's nothing new under the sun. But the, the uh, fathers always distinguish, though, the two parts of Revelation. They always distinguish tradition from scriptures um, as two distinct objects, one completed by the other, but they came from the same source, same origin. So they were not like they were at odds with each other, but they were used in conjunction with each other. They had the same weight. Um, and so, you know, what they received from the elders or the ancients, they would say, um, but did not find in the scriptures, the fathers called that tradition. Um, and of course, we talked about that in a few chapters that distinguish, you know, the other dominical or apost apostolic tradition. Um, but St. Basil, and uh, uh, he writes, and I'll just quote this from on page 209 uh, from Monsignor Quotes. St. Basil uh, writes, Of the dogmas and preachings which are kept in the church, some came to us in writing, he's talking about the scriptures, others were received in mysteries from the tradition of the apostles. And so um, there is a distinct separate means of information uh, of, pertaining to the truth. Uh, Outside that, of course, of the scriptures. And I'll just quote again the longer quote here. And if you just bear with me on page 209 again from Monsignor quotes as well from St. Irenaeus. Actually, just explains it very well. 
He said, St. Irenaeus says, What then, if the apostles did not even leave us the scriptures? Would it not have been necessary to follow the order of tradition which they left to those to whom they entrusted the churches? Many illiterate people adapt themselves to such an order of things, who without paper or ink believe in Christ, but have written in their hearts, writ- written in their hearts through the Holy Ghost what belongs to salvation, and diligently keep the old traditions, believing in one God, creator of heaven and earth. And after reciting the Apostles' Creed, he continues, uh, he says that these peoples who believed without any writings as far as our language is concerned are foreign to our tongue, while in what regards the faith, in its construction and custom and conversation, they are very learned indeed, and they please God, serving him in all justice and chastity and wisdom. If anyone relates to them, even in their own tongue, what heretics have devised, they will at once shut their ears and flee from him, not to hear such blasphemous talking. Thus, through that ancient tradition of the apostles, they do not even want for one moment to entertain in their mind what such persons have to say. So I think that's a great explanation that, you know, the tradition, even if there were no, uh, even a person could not read or write, they could know the faith, and they knew the faith from the handing down of tradition, which is, of course, practiced by uh, the teaching of the church, by practice by the sermons given, even by the practice of, of you know, of, of the things like stained glass, uh, you know, things that uh, are, are there that are part of tradition, which, of course, are rooted in the truth, uh, truth of our Lord, and so that is part of revelation. And so people, even who have no idea how to read or write, they still had the faith. They still had it. They still heard it. Um, and they still, of course, uh, realized that, that both Scripture with tradition declare that they are both, of course, equal in authority. On page 212, the headline reads, The unanimous consent of the fathers of the church in matters of faith and morals is a rule of divine tradition. <laughs> yes, Monsignor goes through uh, and gives uh, um, three sort of uh, um, explanations or three sort of uh, um, bullet points, so to speak, uh, in explaining this. And he says, the first one, he says, when the fathers of the church consent on certain doctrines, which evidently belong to the common faith of the church and all the faithful believe them, then that consent to the fathers shows the divine tradition of those doctrines because it's the same consent to the universal church. And so <clears throat> basically it's the same as that if when the fathers of the church, they, they would, on a certain doctrine, they taught the same thing, they, uh, uh, and the people believed the same thing, um, that's a certain sign that it's the teaching of the church, that it's the universal church, uh, uh, that is the teaching of the church of the truth, and is to, of course, to be believed. And so um, with the, and Monsignor says, the common consent of the fathers is infallible then because the church itself was infallible. So it's not that if it's not that the, the fathers themselves are infallible, but it is basically, they are just expounding upon or reiterating, so to speak, the truth, what has always been taught and believed, which our Lord gave uh, to the apostles. And they're just kind of saying it again. And so that's infallible um, by that because the church is infallible. So the church is, in a sense, then speaking through the fathers and to the faithful. So Monsignor goes to, he says, Likewise, if the fathers of the church, church explain a certain doctrine as theological and true, but do not propose it as explicitly belonging to the faith, 
It is a dangerous sign and a note of temerity to depart from their doctrine and belief. And so, you know, there are times um, when uh, um, the fathers uh, of the church uh, would explain again some article of the faith or some uh, something that is, of course, uh, of a weighty matter, of something that is, you know, not just some superfluous, uh, you know, kind of flighty, whatever, just kind of my opinion kind of thing, but they're teaching in a, in a, in a seemingly a way of, of some authority there. Um, you know, it is, we cannot just automatically just uh, jettison it and say, well, it doesn't, we don't believe it at all or any have you. Um, but it is, it's a, we can't depart from that doctrine and belief. As of course, the church has always set up certain doctrines in regards to the weight that it carries. There's, of course, the highest weight would be de fide. Uh, um, and there, from that point, there's other uh, rankings, so to speak, that are lower than that. Um, that don't carry the weight, say, of de fide, but nonetheless, one cannot reject it. One has to assent to it and believe it. Um, it's just uh, so you have that same sort of structure system there that the Monsignor touches on. And then the third one, he says, uh, when the fathers are really divided on some particular doctrine and grave reasons are given for both sides of the question, we are free to form a different opinion. There is no there is no common consent. It is plain that in such a case, the truth has not come to light thus far. In the course of time, the unanimous consent of the church or its solemn decision may render it evident. So there are times where there are difference of opinion on certain things because the church has not decided on it. And, you know, it is, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, that's, that you have certain doctrines or, or certain um, opinions that have been put forth that the church has not decided upon until maybe later. Um, and But once the church has spoken, once the church has said, no, this is to be believed, this is, etc., then, you know, all talk ends, is that then everyone submits. Um, and But till that time, there are certain things that the fathers maybe would differ on different uh, sort of... Uh, um, theories or, or practices, maybe even in a sense, um, that uh, were not quite, um, or were ambiguous maybe in a certain nature, until of course then the church would speak, either in a council or, or, the, or the Holy Father himself would come and say um, and declare. Um, so it gives you kind of a, an understanding that basically that whatever the fathers of the church state and declare then by common consent, can be nothing else then but the truth, and so that's divine tradition. And so you have that commonality uh, of the fathers of the church and their teaching of certain dogmas or doctrines in that regards. Mm. Well, Father, as you mentioned, um, as mentioned also on page 213, it's a dangerous sign for Catholics to not believe when the fathers of the church or the doctors of the church um, would apply to the same thing. Uh, if they say, have a common consent that something is theological and true, but they don't explicitly propose it as belonging to the faith, such as a pope saying, this is definitely true, um, it would be dangerous for a Catholic to say, oh, to, to reject that in entirety, because there's a good chance, a very good chance that it is true. What would an example be, maybe throughout history, of something that was declared by the fathers or doctors of the church, not proposed explicitly belonging to the faith, but there was common consent, 
and it either has been uh, declared true by Pope or hasn't yet, but people still believe it. What would an, an example of that be? Well, I mean, you can you can really look at even things, um, uh, some things like from the creed, even in cer- certain ways, in regards to something like um, you know the explanation, say of you know of like the Trinity, um, um, things of that nature. I mean, you can that necessarily was not, um, uh, although it's explicitly in the um, creed. Um, but you would have really kind of a, um, a, a general maybe understanding of, of a certain dogma or doctrine or a certain explanation of it to where maybe as time went on, uh, there'd be a grand or a more in-depth explanation of it, a more um, sort of a, a better explanation of certain aspects of a doctrine or dogma like um, um, you know the the uh, our blessed mother being the co-redemptrix uh in that regard is that you although not explicitly never not, uh, declared a dogma um per se but it was been taught of course and believed uh, that of course our, our our lady shares that title as co-redemptrix is that you know she by her cooperation of course in the redemption as she was the cooperating then of course in the the redemption of of mankind by, of course, giving birth to our Lord by by her fiat, and so you have you know, theologians and saints and and doctors proposing that, but the church, um, as of, although I think she was on her way, um, I think Pius the Twelfth might have been quite quite uh, possibly on the verge of declaring that as a specific dogma, but nonetheless it was. Uh, Put forth and believed uh, by uh, many uh, of the uh, of the fathers of the church, even and of uh, the doctors of the church and great theologians of the church, and so one could not uh, necessarily then um, a Catholic could not just say, "Well, it's impossible. I'll never believe it," etc., because um, there is quite a few who. Talk that about that and and explain that in Saint Thomas Aquinas and things of that nature. And so you could not necessarily necessarily jettison something like that without uh, a fear of uh, you know jettisoning uh, an article of the faith. Uh, but time would often tell from that. Uh, as time would go on, you know, you'd have more explanations until again the church speaks uh, on that gar- on that regards. So you know it. it It'd be uh, it's more more along the lines of say you have a a father of the church or a theologian or something who is writing or or is it's an obvious error um, you know it's an obvious they're wrong in what they're writing and you know even you'll find um, then other fathers of the church or other People or theologians at the time, of course, objecting quite heartily to that and, and trying to correct that. And sometimes you'll find that. And um, you know, those are the. And as time went on, that they were proven right. Is that yeah, that was not right. That was an error that they wrote. Um, but uh, so again, you you would always leave it again as Monsignor always reminds us to the authority of the Church. Is that you? Uh, you know, we. 
you know, the sheer fact that, that you have someone, you take a, a father of the church in, in what they've written in their totality and, and someone of that an intellect <coughs> like St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas um, or doctor of the church or um, someone of that station, that, that, uh, um, um, that great intellect of that nature and, and the totality of their work, of course, has been spot on. Um, you know, you always want to say, pause and say, you know, that's the writing on something. Um, and the church has not declared that, that they were wrong. Uh, then you can, as a Catholic, you can't, as a Catholic, then just say, well, they are, you make your own private judgment and say they're wrong. Um, because certainly the church herself, especially if you're talking about the fathers of the church and the doctors of the church, if there were an error of some way, of writing maybe something part of their work was an error or was the church would say um and the church uh, you know ha- would have remarked on, upon that and this is why we get like for tertullian and origin um the church has this is why they're not saints um you know because uh again a lot of tertullian's writings were great were strong they were and origin as well but again they later in life um certainly got into heresy uh, origin was a suspect of it um and then their later writings like that the church is rejected and specifically says no they're not those writings aren't good but the other part the other that that's all good um so you kind of you you always leave it again to what the church says because we have certainly time now uh that the church you know i mean we're talking 2000 years here of the fathers of the church so uh you know the church has already spoken in this regard so if there are things of of uh that were wrong the church would have said because they would not want to lead uh the children or her children to into error themselves so if one father of the church could have made a mistake and you can in private judgment go hey i don't agree with that provided of course that the church has not declared it true but you would say it's kind of dangerous, uh, very imprudent to disagree with what is commonly believed by most or all of the fathers of the church before something is declared by the church to be true. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Otherwise, you 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 come you're coming into the to the realm then of private judgment uh, as far as like a Protestant, you know, private interpretation kind of thing. I don't um, I don't think many people in the SSPX would be listening to this show, but if they are they are probably rubbing their hands together right now saying, oh, one father of the church or one doctor of the church can be wrong. St. Robert Bellarmine has, you know, the opinion or has declared the opinion that a, a heretical pope can actually not be a pope. It loses his office. So they're probably rubbing their hands together because I know that the SSPX hones on that a lot. But I would like to say that that's not just St. Robert, Robert Bellarmine's opinion. No. <laughs> that actually was declared by the church. Uh, you can look it up. Pope Paul the Fourth, cum ex apostolatus officio. It's a papal bull. So anyone thinking, hey, we found a loophole to refute Sede Vacantus, yeah, you haven't with that. Uh, St. Robert Bellarmine, it wasn't just his opinion. It actually was declared by the church, cum ex apostolatus officio. You can look it up. Now, Father, we have... So that was a little SSPX dig. Mm-hmm. But one thing we have done in practically every tradition church show is refute or at least find a hole, find something wrong with the Novus Ordo and explicitly. So we haven't actually done that yet this show, but I'm going to try to do this 
with the previous thing we were talking about, um, I will repeat the quote for the sake of the listeners. On page 213, if the fathers of the church explain a certain doctrine as theological and true, but do not propose it as explicitly belonging to the faith, it is a dangerous sign and a note of temerity to depart from their doctrine and belief. That is, it is a dangerous sign for Catholics to depart from the common belief. Now, Father, would a Pope in any way be considered a father or probably would say a doctor because father is a different time? Uh, could a Pope be considered a doctor of the church? <clears throat> uh, there are, have been uh, um, a doctor, uh, St. Gregory the Great is a doctor of the church. Of course, he's Pope as well. And so, but just the sheer fact that a, a Pope uh, one who is a pope does not automatically make them either a, do- a father or a doctor of the church just because they're the pope. Um, so it, you know, but there are have been popes who have been again doctors of the church, uh, and because uh, of their their uh, great teaching uh, in that regards, or some great theologian possibly is Gregory the Great, or you know those of course early popes um, um, who were closest to our Lord in that time of the age of the fathers. Certainly could be considered, you can say, fathers of the church, but just because they were pope does not automatically give them that title as, as say, father in the proper sense or the a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. So I think that my uh, attempt to refute the Nova Sordo with this is not going to be as good as what we have done in previous episodes, but we can continue anyway for the sake of listeners, see what we can c- come up with here. So... Obviously, the dangerous sign and a note of temerity to, to depart from the doctrine of belief does apply to Catholics. Applying that, could that in any way apply to Bergoglio right now, who is not explicitly declaring perhaps, or I, I would say he is actually a Morris Leticia and other things, but some may say, oh, he hasn't explicitly declared it. But there's a lot of error coming out from that guy, his documents and his mouth. How could the logic apply to Nova Sordites right now? Well, we're not necessarily talking in a certain sense then about, um, you know, say like matters uh, of titles of, you know, doctors or fathers of church. But really, when you're talking with a pope, you're talking about an infallibility. And, you know, the Novus Ordo, of course, by their practice, really rejects the infallibility of the pope because especially like you mentioned too, the SSPX and the, and the recognized registers, of course, they say basically that, yeah, there can be a Pope who can be a heretic. Well, you know, that's, uh, again, that rejects then infallibility uh, and also rejects, of course, indefectibility of the church, that the church has erred or can give error. So you're, you're, so the Novus Ordo really, you know, the thing that, you know, Bergoglio and, and uh, all those Vatican II quote-unquote popes, of course, there are teaching uh, what exactly the dogmas and doctrines of Vatican II, of what has been proposed, which is in direct, uh, which is a, a, a direct contradiction to what the Church has always taught. Uh, so you know we have the, the the heresies of ecumenism and religious liberty and collegiality, you know, and you know you name it, coming from Vatican II. So. Those are matters of faith, and of course, those are matters of morals as well. When, like you have Bergoglio, you know, like you mentioned with his his uh, um, apostolic exhortation, or what that was, um, you know, talking about matters of morals, and 
when a pope speaks like that, of course, he is covered by infallibility. But if he contradicts truth, he contradicts what the church has always taught, ergo, then he can't be the pope then, because he is not then infallible, uh, because he is erring. He is teaching something other than what the church has always taught. So, you know, you have, uh, you know, that conundrum for for those in, in Vatican II. Um, you know, though, again, they, and, you know, I was in it too. I mean, you, you, you do all sorts of mental gymnastics and trying to say, I mean, the whole premise really for those of the recognized resist or those who are quote unquote conservative within the Vatican II is they, they want to declare two things. They want to declare, number one, that Vatican II, the Council of Vatican II and what was taught is not um, is not to, to uh, is not to, was not declared as something to be believed as far as dogmatic or, or doctrinal. They want to declare that, which is again right away falls flat because that's the council itself says it. Um, or number two, they want to say again and rest that the current occupant of the chair of Peter, at least the apparent current ones, are all the way down. Well, they can teach error, or they can teach heresy, but they can still retain their being a pope. And of course, again, as you mentioned before, you know that falls flat on its faith, faith, face as well. And so, what you have, and I try to always uh, remind uh, people in my catechisms as well, is that yes, we look at Bergoglio and and you know as the ilk that has come from that, John Paul II, Benedict, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, we can certainly see and apply. You know, are they uh, are they teaching uh, heresy? Are they? I mean, are they popes or not? But really, the real question is that you have to go back to the source. And just like the source, like for the uh, of revelation of Scripture and tradition, the source, of course, being our Lord, is the you know, etc. Well, you have to look where's the source of these. Teachings and it's Vatican II, it's the Council of Vatican II, what has been taught and has been implemented. And it has been by the fact of, of course, uh, Paul VI citing all those documents, uh, you know, putting his stamp of approval on it and promulgating them to the universal church, of course, that is to be believed and to, uh, that is something universal of, for the church to, to uphold if they, that's, so in other words, a Catholic cannot uh, say, well, that's just a pastoral council, or that's just, no, they're teaching dogmas and doctrines. But then we look and ask and say, well, is that what the church has always taught? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. Um, they're teaching direct contradictions of that. Ergo, that's not the church. That's not Catholic. They're not Catholic then when they, when they teach that error, because the church, because the Pope, of course, is in, covered by infallibility when he talks about faith and morals, when he teaches on faith and morals. And the church herself is infallible when she teaches in that and indefectible. She cannot give anything of error. And so you can see that, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the, the, the premise for Vatican II or those who are adhering to Vatican II is they want to convince themselves that Vatican II, the Council of Vatican II, is, is, was just a pastoral council. It wasn't, you know, uh, the teachings that came from that. Basically, you can take it or leave it is kind of what they're trying to say. Um, because they can just say then, well, we don't believe it. I mean, uh, and be okay with that. 
Or, of course, they want to try and say that the, especially Bergoglio now, that uh, yes, a pope can be a heretic and teach heresy, but yet still retain his office. Um, so, you know, basically, it's it's a large the the, the root of the cause or the root of uh, the cause of the of of these mindset of, of Vatican II, etc., is, is rooted in a denial. And the SSPX does this well as well, and all the recognizers they, they deny ultimately uh, infallibility of of a pope, of a pope, of a of, of the bishops in union with the pope, deny deny the infallibility of the church herself, and they also deny the indefectibility of the church. And so, you know, there's a larger things going on in that regards. But um, you know, but to uh, you know, this is. It's what scripture says, you know, they, you know, you're trying to, you can strain a, a gnat, but you know, not the camel kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, they'll try and pick little things here or there, but they don't look at the, you know, the, the, the source of it. They'll just try to cover up with band-aids here or there and, or in their own way, in their own judgment, say, yes, uh, you know, they don't, I don't, we don't have to believe Vatican II. We don't have to. Well, it's the, it, if they're calling that, that that's the Catholic Church, they cannot then uh, not submit to it. Um, so you know, there's a larger questions going on or larger things going on uh, in, in that regards, but to, to uh, reject, again, anything that the church has taught, um, whether dogmas or doctrines or, or universal teaching or uh, is, of course, a danger, uh, certainly, uh, not only a danger, but to reject the truth, put you outside the church. Um, and so, you know, very simply, that's what Vatican II has done. Um, they have rejected what the church has always taught and taught something new. And there go, of course, that cannot be the church. Otherwise, otherwise we, well, we're just, uh, um, everything's a lie then, <laughs> if that's the, if that's, if that's what Vatican II is, then.